Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to join me in Acts chapter 5 this morning. We'll be beginning right in verse 1 of the text. I just want to say before I get going that I'm just very blessed to be a part of this um, body of believers. This uh, You'll be introduced to a character named Barnabas this morning. And uh, Barnabas was known as an encourager. And I'd have to say that our church this morning is full of Barnabases. Because when I told people that I had to preach today, everybody was very encouraging. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I, I need that because it's a lot that goes into it. And you never know if you're going to get it just right. So I'm very appreciative of all of you who encourage me constantly and consistently um, as I do this. Praise God. So before we dive in to Acts chapter 5, allow me to give you a brief recap of where we've been in the book of Acts so far. So in Acts chapter 1, or Dr. Luke's second volume, since Acts is a continuation of the gospel according to Luke, we see the ascension of Jesus following a period of 40 days in which the scripture says in Acts 1-3, Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. During this time, Jesus commanded the apostles to remain in Jerusalem until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. While they are waiting, the apostles are tasked with filling the vacant position on the team, which was previously occupied by Judas, as foretold in prophecy, as we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, which reads, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. After the apostles cast lots as a means of seeking God's will as to who would fill Judas's position, they determined it was God's will that Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabbas, or Matthias, as we know him, would join the remaining 11 apostles. In chapter 2, the promised Holy Spirit comes in power as the apostles are gathered on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls upon all of them, displaying himself in the form of tongue-shaped flames. Next, they all begin to proclaim the gospel in the native tongue or language of all the Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Following this, Peter delivers a convicting sermon slash history lesson revealing to the Jews in attendance that the man Jesus, whom they crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was and is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, descended from the line of David in accordance with Scripture in fulfillment of prophecy. Peter's sermon leads to 3,000 new converted and baptized believers. Following this, we see an exciting period of church unity, joy-filled charity, and devoted students of scripture during the birth of the church. Chapter 3, we are introduced to the lame beggar, a man who had been crippled from birth, is miraculously and immediately restored to health after an encounter with Peter and John at the gate of the temple. This miracle performed through the apostles filled the people with awe and amazement. Peter then uses this as an opportunity to again present the gospel from the Old Testament to his Jewish kinsmen, urging them once again to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation at the close of chapter 3. 
This sermon in chapter 3 subsequently leads to the arrest of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. As Peter and John are preaching, they are arrested by the priests, Sadducees, and the captain of the temple because, as the scripture says, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In spite of their one-night stay in jail, the gospel continues to go forth in power. In Acts 4.4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. As Chad informed us last week, this number may have been as much as 20,000 if we consider women and children who are not mentioned here. Peter and John continue to preach the gospel in spite of the courts ordering them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, which, of course, they refused, which got them a beating and further threatening. However, they were released because the courts could find no way to punish them for fear of a revolt from the people who were now praising God as a result of the lame beggar's healing. After Peter and John get released, they gather with their friends to tell them about all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Next, they begin to pray, and instead of asking God to change or remove their circumstances, they prayed that God would grant them boldness to continue proclaiming Christ in the face of persecution. Scripture says in Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We are briefly introduced to a man named Barnabas at the close of chapter 4, which then brings us to our text this morning in Acts chapter 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction that it brings. Father, thank you that as we read your word, it reads us. God, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning, God. Would you use my feeble attempt at study and understanding who you are, Father? Would you use that for your glory today, Jesus? Father, I ask that you would ignite the fire to the wood that I bring. In Jesus' name, amen. So look with me at Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? To test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young man came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all gathered in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Praise God. At the close of chapter four of the book of Acts, we are introduced to a shining example of Christ-like character displayed in the life of a man named Barnabas. Barnabas, whose original name was Joseph, was later nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles, and his name means son of encouragement. He was given this name because it was truly who he was as a person. Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, in verse 37 of Acts, chapter 4, sells a field he owns on the island of Cyprus and brings all the money from the sale and lays it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas' stuff wasn't even in Jerusalem. But he wanted to use his possessions to further the mission of the gospel and the care for the poor going on in Jerusalem. What makes his giving even more shocking here? Is verse 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 4, which reads, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So Barnabas does what he does after that, after those verses. So you mean to tell me Barnabas decided now is a good time to sell all my stuff and give it to the church when everybody already has everything they need? Not only that, but he was willing to trust the apostles to distribute the money how they saw fit. He truly displays submission, humility, and a great degree of trust here. Why is this important? Luke, being the physician and historian that he was, would not include such information arbitrarily. Instead, Luke deliberately introduces us to Barnabas here in order to provide us with two contrasting examples. Barnabas, whose generosity and encouraging nature represents the ideal or perfect Christian in an ideal or seemingly perfect church. In contrast to Ananias and Sapphira's greed and hypocrisy, as seen in the first few verses of Acts chapter 5, of which we'll explore this morning. I use the terms perfect Christian and perfect church tongue in cheek because, as we all know, there is no perfect church and there are no perfect Christians. I believe the following quote from Acts, the Church of Fire by Kent Hughes best illustrates this idea. Spurgeon, in his 60 volumes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Anthology, 20 centuries of great preaching, has no sermon on this text. Yet it remains an immensely important passage of scripture. Dr. Barnhouse, on the basis of this text, would never let his congregation sing the third stanza of At Calvary. Now I have given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. 
You see, he said, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. And he goes even further. He says, the truth is, we would not have a pastoral staff either. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, like Bodie Bauckham said. Because I said ouch after I read that. So, because God hates hypocrisy or deception, we must walk in truth and integrity before God and man. Point number one. Because God hates hypocrisy and deception, we must walk in truth and integrity before God and man in order to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Ananias in Hebrew here means God is gracious. And Sapphira's name was Aramaic for beautiful. There are few people's names who have contradicted their lives so dramatically. That's like my name meaning slim in Greek. That's about the equivalent. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the apostles, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice it says, with his wife's knowledge. This speaks to the fact that they had worked on this scheme together. Together they had plotted from the beginning to hold back part of the money. Luke is making it clear that this was not a whim, but a determined plan to deceive the church. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Peter is here giving, given the ability to read the secrets of Ananias' heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time in Scripture God has granted people this ability. Remember Elisha? was given the ability to detect Gehazi's lie in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. And I'll read it. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant's been nowhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. So as we see, this is not some radical idea of God revealing the thoughts of man's heart. This has happened before. While it remained unsold in verse four, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter explains here that Ananias didn't have to give anything. But by pretending to give everything, he was now, instead of being under the control of the Holy Spirit, had now, as a result of his own sinful desires, chosen to be under the influence of Satan. I say chosen because... The sin that put Ananias in Satan's hands was his own doing. Therefore, the expression, the devil made me do it, is something funny we say, but it's not a biblical idea. The devil is a created being, not in any way equal to God. The devil is not omnipresent, omnipotent, or omniscient. Only God is. God can be all places at all times and know all things. The devil cannot. First Peter 5, 8 tells us, be sober minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In light of this, when you sin, it's on you. It's yours. However, spiritual warfare is a reality. And we will face temptations brought to us by Satan and his demons. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The following commentary, I believe, sheds a lot of light on verses 5 and 6. It says, some have a hard time accepting this passage because Peter did not give Ananias and Sapphira time to repent. They say that Peter did not show Christ's compassion or restraint. That Christ's dealing with Judas, was, whose sin was a thousand times more heinous, did not descent to this level. And that the story of Ananias and Sapphira must therefore be fictitious. Of course they failed to note that Peter did not kill Ananias and Sapphira, but God did. This was judgment from God. Peter was just a vessel. I remember early in my Christian walk, the pastor of the church I was attending had invited a guest pastor to come out and speak, um, a revival at the church. There had been a lot of fuss leading up to the event. Much of it involved myself and another brother working tirelessly to raise funds that would go to support this pastor who was coming in from out of town. Wanting to be good servants and to honor our pastor, we went about the business of promoting and working a car wash in front of the church, as well as put up signs and various other duties in preparation. The church I was serving in, mind you, was made up of 90%, if not more, people who would be considered poor as far as the poverty line is concerned, my family included. The day of the, arri- the revival arrives, and we're all, of course, excited to meet the man we've worked hard to bring in, and most importantly, to hear the word that God has laid on his heart concerning our church and our individual lives. I won't go into the poor theology that I believed during that time. Much of it was selfish and self-centered and focused on what God has for me instead of what I can do for others and how I could serve God. Honestly, to this day, I can't recall a word of what that preacher spoke. What I do recall was this man standing before a poor and stretched thin congregation using the scriptures with the skill of a seasoned con man to manipulate us all to put $100 in the collection plate if we wanted to be blessed by God. He even urged those of us who did not have this amount to run out to the ATM and come back with the money if we wanted to be obedient to the Lord. As I think back on this event, Years later, I can't help but wonder what motivated myself and many others to run out and get that money for that man that day. As a young Christian, I'm sure that some of my motivation at the time was to be obedient to God. But that was not the only motivating factor. Conformity to the healthy and unhealthy attitudes and behaviors of self-proclaimed seasoned saints was a common practice in my old church. You know what I mean, right? Man, I heard Roman and Jessica didn't give a $100 offering like the rest of us. They must not be as holy as they appear, right? You know the mumblings. Yeah, girl, Jessica wonder why God ain't answering her prayers when she can't even be obedient and give, right? The moment our motives in giving switched from being motivated by the obedience to God 
to being motivated by the approval or praises of men, we forfeited our blessing and invited upon ourselves the judgment of God for the sin of pride in this example. By the grace of God, we were not dealt with as harshly as Ananias and Sapphira, though every sin against God is worthy of the death penalty. Our judgment was instead the loss of $100 from an already strained budget and the stinging pain of embarrassment for allowing ourselves to be manipulated as such. This was one example of how I've seen this play out in my own life. But the sin of Ananias and Sapphira may manifest itself in a number of ways. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira fell into sin because they desired to be celebrated and given a special name like Barnabas. Or maybe they, like I and my wife, got swept up in a sort of bandwagon effect, feeling a sort of unspoken pressure from all the spirit and power giving going on around them. At the worst, maybe they were making an attempt to rise within the power structure of the church through deceptive means. The scripture doesn't imply that, but whatever their motivation, we should be careful to examine our own hearts because we are just as susceptible to this sin as they were. This sin can also manifest itself in more subtle ways. Maybe you're the type to exaggerate, turning a small deed done into a grand story in which you are the hero. And I think we've all done that, right? We went out and served and we did something and we turned the story into, oh man, I witnessed to 20 people and all of this stuff. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's your thing. Whatever it is, maybe you pump it up. Oh, I shot the deer, but oh, it was only a five-pointer, but I'm going to say it's higher. And I don't know nothing about shooting deer, but I know I hear points. So I think the higher ones are better, right? All right. Maybe you're that type of person who exaggerates. So this, this text, I don't want you to turn off because even though you may not have done the exact thing Ananias and Sapphira did, this speaks into so many different areas of our life concerning hypocrisy and truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. First Peter 5, I'm sorry, give me one. The application here is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, knowing that you are vulnerable to this same sin, you have a responsibility to filter your thoughts, your actions, and your motives through the lens of Scripture, with a heart ready to repent when you see the sin of hypocrisy present in your life. First Peter 5, 8 through 9 tells us how we are to handle the enemy's attacks. It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're not alone. We're not alone when we suffer. Jesus knows what we're going through, and there's other brothers in the faith who are suffering as we are. And Christ is not blind to that. Point number two, because God hates hypocrisy or deception, we must walk in truth and integrity before God and man to produce biblical unity. I'll read that again. Because God hates hypocrisy or deception, we must walk in truth and integrity before God and man to produce biblical unity. Acts chapter 5, verse 7, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Peter is reiterating here an earlier discovery made when dealing with Ananias. The fact that they had planned this lie. Not only had they planned to lie, but in fact they had planned to lie to God himself as if to test God. It is almost as if they are saying to themselves like a child aggravating an adult, let me see if God is really paying attention. Their sin was a display of blatant disobedience and deception before the living God. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. As with the death of her husband, Ananias, Sapphira's death also caused a reverent fear of the Lord to fall upon the whole church. As a result of God's divine and immediate judgment falling on Ananias and Sapphira. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. As I was reading this this morning, it just dropped in my mind this thought. If I drop dead right now as a result of the judgment of God upon hypocrisy in my life, you couldn't tell me this wouldn't spark a revival in this church. I believe people would be so eager to repent, they'd be repenting of stuff they didn't even do. Seriously. (laughs) Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. God's judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira in verse 11, I believe, produced a reverent fear of the Lord among the church, resulting in a renewed unity among believers. Prior to Satan using Ananias and Sapphira in an attempt to stop the spread of the gospel by corrupting the church from the inside, Satan had attacked the church from the outside in the earlier chapters of Acts. Have you ever seen God deal with somebody severely for a sin the same, if not similar to your own? In my experience, these kinds of encounters can serve as a catalyst to push us towards God. As a faith family, many of you are familiar with my testimony. And for Any of you that don't know my testimony, let's just say I spent my fair share of time in courtrooms. I can't tell you how many times guys would come back from court with horror stories of how the judge had given them X amount of years for this and X amount of years for that. And as you sit and listen to them, in your mind, you're measuring your charges against theirs in hopes of getting some estimate of the amount of time you might be facing yourself. Needless to say, This pointless measuring keeps you on an emotional roller coaster that drops you 100 feet one day and lifts you 100 feet the next because it's not grounded in truth but in conjecture and guessing. The truth is the judge in the courtroom has to make a decision about the fate of each individual that stands before him accused of a crime. If he's an honest judge... He will pass judgment on each defendant based on the laws they have broken, as well as defendants' prior and current legal history. This may lead to one man getting three years for a crime, while the next man gets ten years for the same crime. 
because the second man had committed this crime more than once. In light of this, would we say that the judge was corrupt? Probably not. If this is true of a human judge, how much more is this true of God, whose judgment is perfect? We are in no position to question God. Isaiah 29, 16 says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. If God chooses to extinguish one life and give life to another, who are we to question God's divine choice? The immediate and severe judgment of Ananias and Sapphira will most certainly seem unjust if we believe God is obligated to deal with sin in the way we think he should. When you see an earthly judge come down with severity for the same crime as yours, it shocks you and it makes you want to do whatever you can do to tip the scales in your favor when it comes your turn. Here in Acts chapter 5, we see a similar response as the judgment of God causes the people of God to examine themselves in the light of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. The application here is simply to heed the clear warning God gives us in this account concerning his deadly seriousness towards hypocrisy in his church. In knowing this, may we repent of all sin, relying on his grace. Let us ask the Lord to remove habits of deception so that the truth becomes a habit instead. Because God hates hypocrisy and deception, point number three, and then we're out of here. We must walk in truth and integrity before God and man to advance the gospel among the lost. Look with me at Acts chapter 5, verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The miracles performed by the apostles had a dual effect. On one hand, no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. The context here suggests that many people preferred to keep their distance from the church in spite of the miracles being done. I believe the people who kept their distance were afraid of what such a radical life as a member of the early church might demand. Will I have to sell all my stuff and lay it at the apostles' feet? Will I have to start talking about this Jesus everywhere that I go? Will I drop dead for a sin that I committed? I'm sure those were real questions. While some were deterred from joining the church, there was another group of people who said, I want what this Jesus has to offer. In verse 15, it says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The commentator James Montgomery Boyce sheds much light on this verse from this excerpt. A new and extremely important thing we are told is that the gospel was beginning to spread beyond Jerusalem. Verse 16 records that crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the first time there has been any mention of any area beyond Jerusalem. 
Jesus said that this would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And now it was coming to pass. Up until this point, the apostles had only been witnessing in Jerusalem. But now the gospel was spreading into Judea or to the little towns around Jerusalem. Just Friday night, I had the opportunity to minister to a young man around my age, maybe a little bit younger than me. This has been a, it's been kind of an ongoing conversation between the two of us. Um, he's very receptive to the gospel, and he believes he's a seeker. I think he views himself as a seeker. Um, as most of us prior to being saved and learning to read the Bible, we had some seriously faulty ideas about who God is, as well as how it is we are to be saved. My friend is no different. I spent some time explaining the gospel to him in a way I thought would best reach him. I attempted to explain to him that the changed lives that he sees in myself and Albert and the other brothers was not a result of willpower or us trying harder. I wanted this man to understand that Christ knows that he's a slave to sin and that his natural desires are in direct opposition to God. And this helpless state we find ourselves in is what makes the message of the cross so glorious. I could see his heart start to melt as I expressed to him that it is the love of God that ultimately draws us to him. Not our ability to try harder to be good boys and to be good girls. The message of the gospel is at once scandalous and glorious at the same time. The blood of the martyrs throughout the ages has been the soil from which God's church has grown. May we take hold of this message of eternal hope and salvation in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, as well as to our next door neighbors and to our co-workers. The message of Christ is the only message that has the power to change lives here, as well as provide salvation for eternity. I find it of no coincidence that the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles at Pentecost in the form of fiery tongues and that they began to proclaim the gospel thereafter. The Lord has given us his spirit for the purpose of using our tongues and our lives to proclaim how great is our God. That was no coincidence. The fact that the Holy Spirit fell in the form of a tongue, God wants us to speak. Our lives are a message. This is true. But God wants us to speak the words of life to people. If you found yourself this morning, as I did in preparing this, guilty before the Lord concerning your deceitfulness, don't wait to get it right. Tomorrow's not promised. I was talking to the young adults this morning, and I said, you know, that Kobe Bryant thing really rocked a lot of people, didn't it? Because it was evidence that tomorrow's not promised. That man had everything, right? And in our minds, he'd live to be 100 and be commentating on basketball forever. But that's not so. He's gone. In light of these truths, I urge you this morning, if there's something you need to get right with God, don't waste any time. Don't worry about what anybody's looking, saying, thinking about you. You come here this morning and you do business with God. 
you get on your face before God and you repent and you allow him to make the changes in your life and in your heart that you would never be able to do. That is the beauty of the gospel. It is his power, not ours. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you for this time of self-examination. Father, I pray that you have spoken to your people's hearts this morning. Father, I know that you've spoken to mine. And Jesus, I, I pray that if someone's heart is being pulled on this morning by you, that they would obey that call, Jesus. That they would repent, turn from their sins, and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.